What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Spiritual Gangsters Podcast. This is a show for all the people who keep it 100% real, who've been through life able to turn their pain into purpose, for people who've struggled with faith, yet keep asking questions and seeking the truth. It's a show for us to share our thoughts, experiences, and stories, and know that we're not alone. For all the OGs who see through the world's BS, this is The Spiritual Gangsters. What is up, everybody? Welcome back to The Spiritual Gangsters Podcast. It is me here, Teresa, and I am joined by my partner in podcasting crime, the NY Patriot. What's up? Yo, what is up? (laughs) Not much. So I have to say congrats to me and you because it's been one year of the spiritual gangsters. Did you know that? No. When you had, (laughs) when you had told me that before, I was like, holy fuck, it's been that long already. I know. And I was was even thinking in my head, I was like, because like, I know, you know, averagely you, you drop an episode a week. And I was even trying to think in my head, I was like, we've done over 50 episodes together already. Yeah, I guess, right? Well, actually, there was. um, All right, even if there was like three or four weeks of a screw up in there, I mean, still, that's a lot. Right? I was like, holy crap. I was like, you know what's, and you know what's actually really horrible and screwed up? I was like, I probably don't remember like 90% of them. (laughs) You know what? That's so true, though. We hit the button, we record, we talk and or talk with other people, and then. After it's done, I don't remember what was said. You, oh, you know, most you, of the you time. know, you know what? Uh, the best way for me to explain it, I'll yes. remember the info the, or the things that I might have learned, mm-hmm. but I I'll forget. Like, and that will stick with me. But like, two months later, I'll forget that I learned that from that episode and forgot the episode exists. It's something to that extent. It's know? just absorbed in you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. But yeah, I just wanted to acknowledge that. I think it's pretty cool. We've been doing it for a year. Um, you know, thank you to everyone who's been listening at some point throughout the year. If you've only listened once or like many times, yes. we really appreciate it. So, you know, let's keep keep the gangsterhood going. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll even thank the people that hated us but gave us the click. Sure. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Thanks anyway. Yeah. Appreciate right? you stopping by. <laughs> honestly. But um You know no, what? I mean, real quick, you know why I didn't feel like it was a year? Because honestly, I had fun doing it. Oh, that's cute. No. <laughs> I could never imagine my own show has been going on for over two years because I had fun doing it. Right? There you yeah. go. Exactly. Time flies when you're having fun, right? Sure, yes. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I've loved, you know, a lot of the conversations we've had with people. Love meeting everyone who's been on the show. Some were like brand new, some were friends for a long time. So it's been really cool. Um, but one thing that I do want to start doing, and maybe this is like a new direction for the new year of the Spiritual Gangsters, is sometimes talking about like just topics that I'm wondering about at the moment or just things of a spiritual nature that we may find of interest. So Today is one of those kind of shows. So it's just me and you, and we are discussing um, Eucharistic miracles today, which is kind of like, I don't think a topic I've heard talked about in the truth or conspiratorial space 
before other than maybe to shit on it. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) I don't know, but uh, yeah, we've done some, some research on it and it's pretty fucking cool. I think. You know, I don't yeah, know. It's, it's funny, like from both of our angles, people will look at you and say your Eucharistic miracles is bullshit. And then right. people will look at me and like your Eucharistic shit is just you eating fucking sick, fucked up crap. It's like, Maybe. This, this is an angle to deny these things regardless. Right? It's possible. But there is. OK, so here's the thing. Here's the thing. Yes, people can. People sometimes attack me online. For being a conspiracy theorist and also a Catholic. This is to them two opposing things that cannot coexist. I disagree. Well, because- I would also <laughs> even say it, it's it's almost at this point nowadays, if you're a Catholic and don't like Trump, you're not a Catholic. Right? Yeah, there's so many. <laughs> you worship Satan if you don't fucking believe in Trump, who's the next ah. Jesus. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, then the way the Pope is going, like... You know, I get why I get why Catholics have a bad name. I, I, I forgot about that already. Yeah, I mean that is I true. You toss the Pope it. in there, you're already like, oh fuck. Yeah. Adding the Pope is already throwing shade on it. <laughs> but I was saying to you during our research process that honestly, if it wasn't for evidence of the truth of the Eucharist, I would not be Catholic. Most likely, I think I would just be whatever a fucking agnostic, mystic, whatever you want to call it. But um, when you really look into a lot of these, um, there's really cool scientific evidence to support it. So I thought it was an interesting topic that people might not have heard a lot about. And I just think it's cool shit to discuss. Even if you're not religious, it's fucking wild. So please stick around, like listen to the info. It's pretty fucking cool. Yeah, I, even like I had, he was even saying to you before, even like, you can even just look at this as just high strangeness. Absolutely, right? You know, and like, what what I, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll just go. I was going to say something about, but we'll just, we'll just get into it. All but right. it could just, uh, just, could just definitely just at least, the very least, high strangeness, you know? Totally. You want to call it magical, mystical, whatever you want to call it. Something is happening during this process. We'll get into it, mm-hmm. so... All right, so for a lot of people, they might not know what the fuck is the Eucharist, (laughs) right? They might not even know what that means. So when we're referring to it in the episode, we're talking about, like, if if you've seen pictures of or videos of, uh, like, a mass or, like, a service, it's usually, like, a little tiny piece of bread, often in a circular wafer type of form. People are going to say I'm an Illuminati because I just did this. Illuminati I, you know what the best thing is? People will think you're Illuminati and still have that symbol fucked up and incorrect. So, I mean, who cares? <laughs> they don't Anyways, know what the fuck Illuminati it really means confirmed, anyway. Fuck. Anyways, the Eucharist is a little wafer, usually circular form, that in the Catholic Church, they do believe that in the Mass, it becomes the actual body of Jesus Christ. So that's what's called transubstantiation. But during the mass, they believe it becomes a regular unleavened bread wafer into the actual body of Christ. And that's what they distribute at communion time and people eat it. And uh, yeah, that's the crux of the faith. Um, So the word itself, Eucharist, comes from the Greek word Eucharistia. I hope I'm saying that right. I don't know. Which means Thanksgiving. 
So it's supposed to be an action of thanksgiving to God in the celebration of the Eucharist, which commemorates um, Jesus with his apostles at the Last Supper, celebrating the Passover. So that's in the New Testament. People can find those passages. Um, So basically, it's the Holy Spirit plus the instrumentality of an ordained priest doing the ritual and the prayers associated with the event of transubstantiation, and then it becomes the body of Christ. Pretty wild, but not all religions believe that it becomes the actual body of Christ. So there's a couple different ones. Uh, So the churches that do believe it becomes the real body and blood, if there's the wine involved, they believe it becomes the blood of of Christ. Um, Eastern Orthodox and Oriental Orthodox Catholicism and Anglicanism believe it becomes the actual body and blood. But other Christian denominations uh, like Lutherans, Reformed Christians, and Evangelicals believe it's more of like a spiritual representation. They don't believe that it's like the actual body and actual blood. So they call it like a spiritual communion or a symbolic presence. Yes. Yeah. Also, because my son just did his first communion like a month ago, not even. Is that what kind of gave you the idea for this? Or Actually, I, I know you've been talking about doing this for a while, but was that yeah. kind of like what really kicked it in? You're like, you know, I got to do this. No, oh, okay. I don't think so, actually. I mean, maybe it's kind of been like on my mind more than usual. And like he's been learning about it a lot because he had to do like little classes for it and stuff. Um, but to be honest, I mean, this might sound weird to people. But uh, just in, like, my quiet, like, prayer and reflection time, I really felt it on my heart to talk about it. I know that sounds kind of cheesy. No, that's, that's when you're supposed to do it. Yeah. So uh, that, that's, just it, that's to... your will for letting you know what's up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I've always been one to answer those hits of intuition. So, you know, I'm just going to do it because that's what I've always done in my life. So Love it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, was I going to say? Oh, yeah. So I did learn during my son's first communion prep <laughs> that only 30% of Catholics actually believe in transubstantiation. Only 30%. And that's like supposed to be the most important part of the faith. Only 30% believe that it becomes the actual body and blood. 70% so think they, it's just like they're faking a, the rep- funk. a representation. <laughs> they don't believe that it's actually happening. The why is it would see why are you even going to that church? Why are you even a Catholic? Exactly. Why are you even going if you don't believe? Like all this, all all of this stuff comes down to faith, obviously. In the end, I I would I would even say, and 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 I'll prove my point later on in the show. Even if you're a real magician and you don't do Eucharistic stuff, there's a fucking problem. Right. I'm just gonna leave it that way until we get to where I'm going. I just think it's kind of like a, a reflection of the times, you know, because I think a lot of people, for example, when my son was doing his first communion, probably a solid 80% of those kids won't come back to a church for years. Like they, their parents make them do the sacrament because it's tradition or they're, they're make their grandparents happy or it's just like, it's just what we do, you know. So they make their kid do this thing that they don't really believe in because it's tradition. 
And then they probably won't come back to a church unless it's for a funeral or a wedding or maybe never. And that child will never receive the Eucharist again for many years or very infrequently, let's say. Mm. You, you know what's you know? you know what's funny? And I'll, I'll say this real quick, just a just perfect example, almost kind of like what you're saying. Mm-hmm. My brother got married. He got married in a church. And mm-hmm. they do like the whole like, you know, they do they hand out that stuff at the end. You yeah. know, um, they, you know, besides me, there was plenty of other people who didn't get up and do that. And, yeah. because, and you know, when I was doing that, when I decided, made that decision not to do that, because, oh, I'm not a Catholic, blah, blah, blah. I know I'm still going to fuck up after this. Why am I doing this? <laughs> you know, I have all that shit going in my head. And that was like kind of like in the beginning phases of me being a magician. But like now I could look back on it and just think like I really gave myself some real shitty excuses about why I didn't do it. And if I looked at the Eucharist the way I do now, I'm sure I would have gotten out of my seat and actually have done it. There you go. As silly and and, and people probably like this is coming from him. <laughs> but there is, I do believe, and that's why I did this episode with her. I, other people might even be thinking, I can't believe he's doing this episode. Well, I, I asked believe, you and I didn't know if you would say yes no, to doing it. I definitely believe <laughs> there is something up with that stuff. Re- mm. And, you know, regardless of where it's being done, it's just like even with the church, and, and this was something that I was going to say before, and I'll just get it out now. Sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm stealing a thunder over here. But, like, you know, I, I went out to Nashville not too long ago, and I, and I videotaped a bunch of occult architecture, I thought, in a Masonic Lodge. And it was my first time using the camera. I didn't have a stand. I didn't have a fucking shoulder thing. So, like, I knew it wasn't going to be the most steady stuff. And, like, honestly, I figured this thing worked so easily that footage has to look like shit, and I probably can't use it. So, I, out of the fear of what this looked like, I didn't fucking, I didn't look at it. I mm. put it in my computer last night, looked at it, and almost fell on the fucking floor because I was like, I cannot believe the quality of this. And I was filmed a few churches, and I'm zooming up on these things on these churches. And, you know, when you're out in the streets and you're, like, looking up and you're looking at these things and you're like, oh, wow, this is, like, so amazing. Like, look at that even little thing all the way at the top. From all the way at the bottom, that thing even still seems crazy. But now when I'm zooming up on these things... Those things have so much fucking detail in them still. Yeah. So long story short, no matter what you may think about that religion, the idea, or or what it is now, at some point when these things were built, I'm sorry, you cannot convince me there was not fucking love, devotion, and passion in building these things. There is fucking power within that. Yeah. So when you have buildings that have that much fucking love for God and for the idea put into it, I'm sorry, I believe there could be miracles. Just from the energy there, which is why I do believe things can actually happen in, in this whole stuff. As silly as it sounds, I believe that there, it, it, shit happens. I love that. Well said. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. You know, that I just so put it real, real quick this way. I don't believe a fucking slave is going to put that much love and attention to something it's making. Mm. So you can't even say, oh, they had fucking slaves make. No. <laughs> there was no. feelings behind building that stuff. 
I'm sure there were some slavery involved in things, but like those details and stuff was probably like artisans who took like real pride and like yes. care. And they were commissioned for that and work. And they knew what they were making it for and what it meant to them. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. You know, even when we want to talk about like Da Vinci or Michelangelo, like when they were commissioned to make stuff for, for churches and art in a religious context, they may have had other beliefs that they like kind of put in there in details, but ultimately it was to honor God, you know? So, I, think so. Mm-hmm. I love that. Thanks for saying that. That's yeah. nice. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So I just wanted to kind of define what it is in the beginning. So people understand or have a better idea. And then uh, I guess we'll give some examples of what we're talking about when it becomes miraculous or what that means like examples of these miracles right uh, okay so one of the first ones that uh i came across in researching this oh and sorry real quick i wanted to also add in there another reason why i had the idea to do this show is because one of the ones that you're going to cover actually i have seen in person so when i was younger I was like 16 years old I went to school in Italy for a summer uh, to study art and I stayed in a town called Lanciano and in that town there is a Eucharistic miracle that's been there since for hundreds of years. I don't know, you're going to get into the details, but ever since I saw that, I was like, that's really interesting. So that's one of the famous ones I've heard of and a couple others, but in researching the topic, I learned about other ones that I had never heard of, so... That was really cool. But it sort of like stayed on my heart, like from young, you know, as a teenager, that there's something to this, you know, it's much more mystical than most people sort of brush their faith off as like, it's not a big deal. Or if you're not of that faith, you're like, eh, that's bullshit. So anyways, let's get into it. So one of the ones um, that I thought was really cool is in Santarém, Portugal. Just going to read a bit about what happened. This is from the 13th century, uh, I think like, where was it, 1255 or something like that. So the story goes, a woman living in Santarém, Portugal, uh, in the th- 13th century was distressed because her husband had been unfaithful to her. So she decided to consult a sorceress for help. And the sorceress told her the price for her services was a consecrated host. So this means that she needed to steal the host during the mass. So after the priest blesses it and it becomes the body of Christ, she had to somehow steal that out of the church because you're supposed to consume it and eat it right away in front of the priest. So you're going to have to somehow steal it and bring it to the sorceress, right? So it says, she went to mass at the church of St. Stephen and received the Eucharist on her tongue, removed the Eucharist from her mouth and wrapped it in her veil and headed for the door of the church. But before she got out, the host began to bleed real blood. Weird, right? (laughs) Okay. So when she got home, she put the bloodied host in a trunk, like a case or whatever. And that night, a miraculous light began to emanate from the trunk. Uh, She repented of what she had done the next morning. She told her husband also what she had done. They both repented of their sins. She confessed to her priest and the priest came and retrieved the host and took it back to the church. Um, 
The host continued to bleed for three days. Finally, it was decided to place the host in a, a reliquary made of beeswax. I'm assuming that's some sort of holder. The host remained there until a second miracle occurred. So this is in like the mid-1200s. The second miracle occurred in the 1300s. So around 1340. Um, so the priest enclosed the host in the beeswax holder and placed it in the tabernacle. The tabernacle is the place where you keep the consecrated hosts. Uh, this is where the second miracle occurred. The priest opened the tabernacle door. The beeswax holder had disintegrated into small pieces. In its place was a holder made of glass that contained the blood of the host together with the beeswax. Uh, since then, the uh, holder remains in the Eucharistic tabernacle on an oh, sorry, on an altar. And today the church is known as the sanctuary of the Holy Miracle. Very weird. Right? Isn't it interesting he uses beeswax? I know, right? I thought that too. I was like, why beeswax? Maybe for preservation it. purposes? I thought it would have stop the bleeding maybe see now oh well now i'm thinking about oh. i don't know why beeswax yeah because even um it's suggested that enochian tablets should be made out of beeswax oh that's wild hmm that's very weird. interesting so there's like a few other like interesting things that happen with the same miracle so it says through the centuries the host has bled repeatedly and several images have been seen in the host, including images of the face of Jesus. Among many witnesses is St. Francis Xavier himself, the missionary apostle who would later go to India. And he stopped at that sanctuary before departing on his missionary work. Um, yeah, really interesting. Still to this day, it's there. Um, they have celebrations to honor it, I believe every April. In Portugal, they do something for it. And the house where the lady first brought the host from the church, uh, her house has been transformed into a chapel since 1684. Interesting, right? Yeah. So and also in 1340 and 1612, there was testing done to prove the authenticity of the miracle. And it's only left Santarem once when Napoleon invaded. They removed it because they were afraid that like something would happen to it. And they took it to Lisbon in a different church. But then they moved it back afterwards. I thought that was interesting. Yeah. Like it. Love it. Yeah. Pretty wild. Yes. <laughs> so then I guess I'll go into uh, one of the ones that I have. Sure. And this one I really like. Um, the miracle of, uh, you want to, how do you say it again? Lanciano. Yes, Lanciano. <laughs> it is uh, is a Eucharistic miracle alleged to uh, have occurred in the 8th century in the city of uh, Lanciano, Italy. According to tradition, a monk who had <laughs> doubts about the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist right. found <laughs> when he said the words of uh, consecration at Mass, that the bread and wine changed into flesh and blood. Uh, <coughs> sorry. Let me see this all over again. I'm screaming. 
The miracle of uh, Lanciano is a Eucharistic miracle alleged to have occurred in the 8th century in the city of Lanciano, uh, Lanciano, Italy. According to tradition, a monk who had doubts about the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist found, when he had said the words of consecration at Mass, that the bread and wine changed into flesh and blood. The Catholic Church officially recognizes the miracle as authentic. This story is similar to the tradition known as the Mass of St. Gregory, first recorded in the 8th century by Paul the deacon. The uh, traditional account, the first, uh, the first known reports of the evident date to uh, the, ev- the event date to 1574 and do not specify the exact year in which it would have occurred. But some believe that the certain historical circumstances allow it to be placed chronologically eight centuries earlier between 730 and 750. So they're basically, I guess, kind of assuming it was around that time. Uh, The Byzantine Emperor Leo III, uh, who reigned from 717 to 741, implemented a strict policy against images by promulgating. And I'm going to take this out. It's okay. No, you know what? It, did you hear a noise in the background? Yeah, kind of. It is fucking me up. Like a dragging? No, these fuckers is just on rail with this apartment downstairs. Constant. What is that? It might, might be people outside blowing off the fucking grass. Well, it's not that bad. I just, I can hear it, like, very faintly. Okay, all right. Because, like, I'm thinking it sounds horrible. And I'm, no, it's, no, it's, it's just, like, a, like a very up. light, like, dragging kind of sound. It's not really distracting on my end. Okay, I'm going to skip the whole traditional account and just go into it. Sure. Right. The archbishop ordered an investigation. The testimony of uh, witnesses was recorded. The flesh and blood appeared to be human flesh and blood. The archbishop sent a scale for the weighing of the glo- globules. Each individual global weighed uh, the same as the other individual ones. Although they were different in size, somehow they all had the same weight. And uh, eventually the flesh and the globules of blood were placed in a special IV uh, reliquary. I don't even know how to say this word. Right? That's the word I stumbled on, too. Reliquary? Yeah, but but it was not hermetically sealed. Church authorities certified the miracle, although the original original document was lost uh, sometime in the 16th century. Over the century, different religious orders have had custody of the church and the relics. Originally, the Basilians, until 1176, followed by the uh, Benedictines. How do you say that again? (laughs) Benedictines. Yeah, okay. Until 1252, and since then by the Franciscans. In 1258, uh, they built a new church under the patronage of St. Francis of Assisi to replace the decaying church of St. Longinus. The relic to this day remain at the Basilica under the care of the Franciscans. Since the first basic investigation, the church has permitted other studies on the relics. In 1574, uh, Rodriguez once again weighed the five uh, globules in the presence of witnesses and arrived at the same conclusion. 
Uh, so even after eight centuries have passed, <laughs> there was no deterioration. That's wild, right? Yeah. In 1713, the original uh, ivory, whatever, was replaced by one of, one of silver and crystal. The flesh is, dip- is displayed uh, just like the sacred host, and the, go- uh, the globules of blood are in a crystal chalice, which some believe is the actual chalice used by the monk for that mass. Hmm. This is where I think it starts, get, starts getting interesting, too. Uh, the most thorough study occurred in 1970 to 1971. Pope Paul VI permitted a series of scientific studies on the precious relics to verify their nature. Dr. Odardo Linoli, probably screwed <laughs> that up, professor of anatomy and pathological history, chemistry and clinical uh, microscopy, and head physician of the hospital at Arezzo, conducted this study. He was ex- assisted by Dr. Ruggiero Bertelli, Professor Emeritus of Human Anatomy at the University of Siena. So, I mean, I mean, again, I guess today, you know, people who say what science is, I mean, I don't know where the fuck they get that shit from. But I'm assuming these guys weren't fucking idiots. You know? Right. <laughs> they had credentials. Yeah, they have some credentials. <laughs> the analysis were performed in accord with scientific standards and documented and Dr. Bertelli uh, independently corroborated doc- the other doctor's findings. So if people don't understand what that just said. These doctors did their own things and came to the same conclusion. Mm-hmm. In 1981, using more advanced medical technology, Dr. Linoli conducted a second study. And he not only confirmed the findings, but also gathered new information. The major findings from the research, including the following. The flesh, yellow-brown in color, has the structure of the myocardium, the heart wall, and the endocardium, the membrane of fibrous elastic tissue lining all the cardiac cavities. These have the same appearance as in the human heart. No traces of preservatives were found in the elements. The blood was also of human origin with the type AB. Proteins in the clotted blood were normally fractioned with the same percentage ratio as those found in seroprotic makeup. Normal for fresh human blood. That's wild. The blood contained these mirror minerals. Chloride, phosphorus, magnesium, potassium, and calcium. So, I mean, you know, it wasn't, uh, it was as if that was like recent blood. Yeah. Uh, Asserted that if the blood, if taken from the cadaver, would have deteriorated rapidly. Given that these samples were centuries old, free of preservatives, and never hermetically sealed, they should have deteriorated. However, they underscored. Uh, however, he underscored that the samples had the same property as fresh human blood. And, you know, it was fresh and, and flush. Moreover, the doctors both concluded that only the skill of a trained pathologist could have obtained 
such a sample. So again, like this is, I, mean, I hate to tie them both together, but I mean, this almost even goes back to like Jack the Ripper. That person obviously, <laughs> that person obviously knew what they were doing with the way that they took out his body parts. Yes. You know what I'm saying? So it's not. It, well, if, so, if, if you're, somebody I guess was you're trying saying to fake, if someone was to fake this. Yeah. Right. Like they would have had to have a freshly killed person. Right. I knew what they were really, really doing. Knew exactly what piece of the heart they were cutting out. Shipped that sample to these doctors, wherever the heck they were, within minutes. But like, put know, it this like, way, I don't think a Jeffrey Dahmer type of person could even have pulled this off. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. And it's supposed to be over 1,200 years old. Yep. So, that is... Uh, you know, I, I, I don't... I, uh, I'll save it for the one of the other ones that I'm doing. I could be wrong, and I might have even read what I'm going to say in another one. Might even be a situation with this one, but there's even going to be stuff that's going to come up with one or two of the other ones that I'm going to cover. That, in my opinion, is like what really like seals the deal that the shit is fucking weird, because it's going to get even weirder. Beyond this, am I? It's going to get even weirder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that one is uh, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah. With all, I don't know. Just yeah, that's what makes it real for me is like the scientific testing and proof that it's like holy shit. See like, that that was that was uh, <laughs> you know and 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 I do I do want to give a shout out to uh, I'm probably gonna screw up the name I, I you know what I'm just gonna look him up real quick on here sorry to waste the time but I just want to make sure I get his name uh, correct I got Pope underscore head V. I check, unfortunately, he's got a check mark. Uh, at Pope Head, um, at Pope underscore Head. Uh, he had posted some stuff that I thought was really interesting on Twitter. And then uh, I hit him up and I was like, yo, my man, uh, probably assuming he wasn't even going to answer me because he's got 42,000 followers. I was like, yo, I was like, I love the stuff that you've been posting on the, on the Mormons. <laughs> of course, the Mormons. I was like, yo, I got to get you on my show. And this dude hit me back like within minutes. And he's like, yo, I was literally just binging your podcast. I cannot believe you just hit me up. That's so weird. Blew my fucking mind. And I was going through his sub stack and I saw that he had something on Eucharistic Miracles. Nice. And I was like, holy fuck. I was like, Teresa was just talking about wanting to do this. So I hit him up and I was going to be like, yo, my man, you, you got to come on. You got you, all three of us got to do this. He's very busy out of the country doing a bunch of things right now. And he's, he's really just focused on trolling Jesuits, too. So he, <laughs> he ain't got much time and really the capabilities of jumping on a show for at least a month. Mm. Now, I kind of didn't want to, you know, waste a month because as much as I'm not religious, I'd rather see June for Jesus than Pride Month. So I, I'd rather make sure this gets done and released in June instead. So, yeah. <laughs> so that's our little way of combating the propaganda. Yeah, you know. For real, for real. I'm going to be totally 100% too. <sighs> that was one of the reasons why I wanted to do this because I'd much rather see people talking about Jesus for June than fucking uh, L by LBGTQIAXYZ. It's just, just out of fucking, like it's just out of fucking hand. Yeah. All months, yeah like, it's really? out of hand at this point. It's like, it's like if you don't want to fuck anything that fucks you, you're fucked up. We're out of control now. <laughs> out of control. Yeah. 
<laughs> so so I, I had hit him up, and he couldn't come on. Two out of the three, it's a long story short, finally. Sorry, I just took everybody around the world for this. Long story <laughs> short, two of the things, um, I did not plagiarize his stuff, but I did get the two of uh, the things that I am covering. He covered in his Substack. It's a great article, great yes. Substack. I read it as well. So, so thank you, you yeah. know, to Popehead on Twitter for your work. I really admire it. So hopefully we can get him on one day for something oh, else. Oh, yeah, no, I've already spoken to him. I'm going to get him on for something else. Once I get back from vacation, he should be good to go. But, uh, yes, Popehead, thank you very much. I did not want you thinking that I was just like, ah, screw him. I'm not going to have him on, and I'm just going to plagiarize his stuff. No, no I'm no, giving no. you a huge shout-out, and I, I, I took your your instances and got my own info. So, but thanks again, man. Yeah, for real. Yes. Amazing. So that's it for launch on. Yes. Yes. All right, cool. So, um, another miracle that I came across was in, I hope I'm saying it right. Tixla, T I X L A Tixla, Mexico. I don't know. I never heard of that city before. And this one occurred in more recent times, 2006. So it's funny because like there's literally, I think maybe close to 200 documented Eucharistic miracles um, over the centuries. So some as old as what you were talking about, 758 AD. This one's 2006. I've even seen some more recent ones, but maybe they're not like verified yet. So oh, yo, anyway. I, I, you sent me a list of these things and I was like, Looking at it, I was like, well, we could do one every June for like the next five years. <laughs> Maybe that should be our contribution yeah. against pride. We're like, June for Jesus. Come on. I'm trying to get the hashtag going online. I'm like, hashtag June for Jesus. And, and listen, I'm going to, I'm sure I'm speaking for both of us. I, I could give two flying fucks if you're gay. Yes, Honestly, I can, I can yes. get you flying fucks if you go cut off your dick and, and do whatever crazy shit inside your house. It's the yeah. fact you want to start pushing this shit on kids and making yeah. and making people think that the, the 95% is supposed to bend to the other five. Yes. You can be prideful in who you are. Just don't tell other motherfuckers that's who they need to be. Totally. I just, honestly, even if, if uh, pride was about straight sexuality, it's too much. Why is it in kids' face? I, I just don't understand why we need to talk constantly about sexualizing things in front of children at this age. It's just not appropriate. The word Sorry. pride has gotten twisted. Yes. It has really basically gotten replaced for ego and flashing. Yeah. Love who you want to love. That's fine. That's your business. But you don't need to put it on my kid's face at school. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or just, in every, just, every store we enter for all of the summer. Like, <laughs> yeah, I just, I just wanted to make sure I added that because I mean, yes. like, even even yesterday, sorry again, I'm fucking, you know, taking over your show here. No, you know, did you see that? It's that's our show. Yeah, Don't yeah. ever say that. You know, that sneaker I put up yesterday, uh, you know, making fun of Trump. Why don't you walk oh, a mile yeah. in his shoes? Yo, somebody literally had commented saying, I never would have pictured you for hating Jews. Oh, my God. That's not what. Uh, Again, and I said, it. what? I said, I study the fucking Kabbalah and I hate Jews? <laughs> I said, yo, you need to go find another account oh. to shitster to be an SJW for the day. Yeah. yeah. What I hate is our country fucking us over and getting pimped out by another one. <laughs> has nothing to do with Jews. Yeah. It has to do with us simping and cucking for Israel. 
That's yes. all. Exactly. They yeah. do it across people the whole. Like, I, yeah, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> no, people just take it to. They take it to the most basic, simplified interpretation, and it's like, oh my god, that's not what I was saying at all. So <laughs> I was just like, yeah. and then I'm thinking, I'm like, this is exactly how liberal-minded, ignorant shit starts. Because you just painted a meme to mean something it completely did not mean to me. And selective outrage. And now all your liberal-minded, fucktard friends that see your post (laughs) are going to think that's what mine meant. Yeah. Fucking insane. So long story short again, uh, we don't hate gay people. No. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't hate Jews either, so... we like everybody. Uh, believe it or not, for the most part. I, and, I, and I will be, and I'm, this is going to sound fucked up. Mm. Behind the scenes, behind the mic, I'm probably one of the fewer podcasters that actually don't fucking hate Jews. <laughs> Sorry, stop so loud. <laughs> believe it but or that's, not. Uh, that's a Because I'm being straight the fuck up. You have a lot of motherfuckers out there that off the fucking mic actually literally hate all fucking Jews. Yeah. You have a bunch of fucking Hitlers out there with the microphone that fucking, you know, cover it up real well by the nice shit they say. They throw Jesus around. It's, it's, mm. I know I bring this shit up a lot. People are probably they're tired of hearing but it's it. True. But it's true and it's getting fucking scary and disturbing. It's, so, it's disturbing. Yeah. It is fucking scary. Yeah. Sorry. Back to the YouTube. It's okay. That was funny though. Sorry, I laughed so loud. It probably came out so loud on the mic. Like (laughs) no No worse than me. (laughs) No, but it's true. Yes, by what we're saying, um, you know, we don't hate gay people or Jews. I mean, like even I I have shit on people. Perfect example. I don't hate Sam Tripoli. (laughs) Here he goes. (laughs) No, I have shit on him over and over again. Does that mean I hate that man? I'll be totally straight up. The amount of energy and the way it changes a person and changes their whole day, I would not give somebody the benefit of the the benefit of actually hating them. Just yeah, like when you hate something pure hate, you feel that through your body and that's going to change the rest of your day because your outlook, your mind is somewhere else. I would not give somebody that power and control over me by hating them. Mm -hmm. It's a form of control, exactly. Yep. All right. Back to the Eucharist. (laughs) All right. So this miracle in Tixla, Mexico, 2006, occurred when a mass was being celebrated during a parish retreat. During the mass... Two parish priests and religious a religious sister, so a nun, were distributing Holy Communion to the congregation. The nun turned to the priest celebrant with tears in her eyes because one of the hosts in her chalice had begun to emit a reddish substance. Filled with amazement and unsure of what to do, the priests informed the bishop. So Bishop Alejo Zavala Castro formed a theological commission to investigate the phenomenon and determine whether the host was supernatural or simply a hoax. Dr. Ricardo Castañón Gómez, who had also investigated another miracle that you're going to talk about in Buenos Aires in 1996. So he'd done, he'd done this before, this commission type of work. He led a team of scientists in an intensive study of the host 
between 2009 and 2012. So this occurred in 2006, and they're studying it three to six years later. So he his report had the following findings. The reddish substance corresponds to blood in which there are hemoglobin and DNA of human origin. The blood type was found to be AB, again, which corresponds to the miracles at Buenos Aires that you're going to talk about, Lanciano, Italy, as well as the traces of blood found on the Shroud of Turin. Forensic experts found that the substance originates from the interior of the host, which would discount the theory that it was somehow planted from the outside. Part of the blood was found to have been coagulated since 2006, but further examination shows the presence of fresh blood from 2010. The blood contains intact white blood cells, red blood cells, and acromicrophages that engulf lipids, indicating an active metabolism. That's crazy. The tissue seems to correspond to the muscle of the heart, the myocardium, as found in other Eucharistic miracles. Further, this was found to be living cardiac muscle. Normally, after 48 hours, the tissue would die. But in this case, three months had passed before the results could actually be obtained. The study concluded that this event has no natural explanation. The miracle is sometimes attributed to the young blessed Carlo Acutis. He's an Italian. uh, I don't know if he's a saint now, but at the time of this article being written, he was blessed, which means it's being considered for sainthood. He was a young boy who died of leukemia just a few days before this miracle in Mexico took place. The reason they attribute it to possibly being associated with Carlo Acutis is because he was a young boy who loved video games, soccer, computer programming, and had a deep devotion to the Eucharist. After receiving his first Holy Communion, he worked to bring his parents back to the faith by cataloging hundreds of Eucharistic miracles throughout the world. Um, And that's actually the list that I sent you that was like super duper long. He made that list. That was his website that he made. So because he was like so fascinated with computers and the internet, he sort of like combined his love for the two things and he would use his internet time to like make this list. When you sent me that list, I was like, Fuck. That's a lot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Then you sent me something else, real... and I was like, "Yeah, I think I'll pick off of this." It's only fun. Yeah, <laughs> people can find that list just by googling him. His last name is A C U T I S, and just look up Eucharistic list or whatever. I'm sure it'll come up. Carlo himself uh, was continually amazed by what he found looking into Eucharistic miracles, uh, and he was always quoted as saying, "The Eucharist is my highway to heaven." So that's why you know, his death coinciding with this miracle, they say maybe he had something to do with it or associated with his death. So yeah, that's Mexico, 2006. I just love it. The best thing that I, I, I liked about that, and it's uh, it's something I've even like, <laughs> I've even seen like uh, people like on blogs, like even try to like bring this point up and I'm like, but you just missed the major thing that discredits your opinion. Mm-hmm. Now I do know, uh, especially, which is something interesting and something I may actually eventually cover. You know, back in the day, churches were actually built in a specific way. There was just like everything had a face a certain way, <laughs> and it, a lot of churches even had graveyards, or, yeah. or, or 
I think they, they may call them cemeteries, whatever. There's actually a different term used depending if it's attached to a church, I think. Oh, really? I didn't yeah, know that. Believe it or not, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, some, and that in itself had to be a certain direction on the side of a church. Regardless mm-hmm. about all that, you got people saying, oh, well, you know, how do you know you just didn't go dig up, you know, fucking dead person and, and bring this in and, and say this and that. It came right. from a living body. Yeah. This wasn't a uh, serpent in the rainbow. Some dude getting, didn't get some shit blown in his fucking eyes. He got buried. <laughs> and then yeah, we just dug him up. Yeah, he's alive now. We're going to take some of his fucking heart skin. These people were mm-hmm. dead. This is not dead skin. This is skin that was technically alive when it was taken. Yeah. So your whole graveyard idea just got fucking thrown out the window. Right. And now, hey, having said that, I th- thank you for that, by the way. But also, you know, I'm sure there have been instances where people have tried to fake these things. You know, oh, of course. I'm sure, yeah, of course. I'm sure that that has happened. Just, yeah. You know, but uh, that's why we're presenting ones that have actual evidence and a lot of mystery around them. I mean, you know, ninety percent so. of magicians are faking. Yeah. <laughs> or fake. <so>. Right. <laughs> oh, man. All right. So I'll, I'll go uh, I'll go into mine. And, and that was one of the things that uh, I think that I was going to end up and eventually touch on on one or two of these, too, is that the fact is that, like, they did even say, like, this did not come from, like, you know, a dead body. This came mm-hmm. from something that was, like, a, a technically alive, you know. Crazy. Yeah. Um, at seven o'clock in the evening on August eighteenth, nineteen ninety six, Father Alejandro uh, Pizet, if I'm saying it correctly, was celebrating Holy Mass at a Catholic church in a commercial center of uh, Buenos Aires. As he was finishing distributing Holy Communion, a, a woman came up to tell him she had found a dis- discarded host on a candle holder in the back of the church. Going to the spot indicated, uh, the father saw the defiled host. Since he was unable to consume it, he placed it in a container of water and put it away in the tabernacle of the chapel of the Blessed Sacrament. Now, just real quick, I'm not going to go into it, but there is supposed ways that, I guess, if someone left it behind, if the priest did what he did over it and it wasn't consumed, there's actually a specific way that you're supposed to kind of get rid of it now. Mm -hmm. So that is why he did not take it in and he put it to the side. On August 26th, upon opening the tabernacle, uh, he saw, to his amazement, that the host had turned into a bloody substance. He informed Cardinal Jorge, uh, whatever, uh, now. Yes, now. (laughs) I I love this because I was, and again, this isn't a way for me to attack the Catholic Church. (laughs) <laughs> in, the, in the way that some people would. And again, like, I know me and you might have differences in beliefs. The Catholic Church interests me because I do think it's ceremonial magic in a sense. But uh, Catholic, but this was, however you say his last name, was Pope Francis. Mm-hmm. Bergoglio. Jorge Bergoglio. And in magic, you change names. So just going to leave it there. Weird. Yeah. <laughs> you can give yourself different names. So uh, he who gave instructions that the host uh, be professionally photographed. 
The photos were taken on September 6th. They clearly show the host, which had became a fragment of bloodied flesh and had grown significantly in size. For several years, the host remained in the tabernacle, the whole affair being kept a strict secret. Since the host suffered no visible uh, decompensation, the cardinal decided to have it scientifically an, uh, analyzed. On October 5th, 1999, in the presence of the cardinal's representatives, Dr. Castanon took a sample of the bloody fragment and sent it to New York for analysis. Since he did not wish to prejudice the study, he uh, purposely did not inform the team of scientists of its, you know, provenance. He didn't even want to let them know, like, where you know, the whole situation. Where it came from, yeah. One of these scientists was Dr. Frederick Zugiba, however you say his name, a well-known cardiologist and forensic pathologist. He determined that the analyzed substance was real flesh and blood-containing human DNA. Dr. Zugiba testified that the analyzed material is a fragment of the heart muscle found in the wall of the left ventricle close to the valve. The heart muscle is in inflammatory condition and contains a large number of white blood cells. This indicates that the heart was alive at the time the sample was taken since white blood cells die outside a living organism. Mm. They require a living organism to sustain them. Thus, their presence indicates that the heart was alive when the sample was taken. What is more, these white blood cells had penetrated the tissue, which further indicates that the heart had been under severe stress as if the owner had been beaten severely about the chest. Two Australian uh, journalists, Mike Willise and lawyer Ron, I'm going to try to pronounce his name, witnessed these tests. Knowing where the sample had come from, they were dumbfounded by Dr. Zugiba's testimony. Mike uh, Willis asked the scientists how long the white blood cells could have remained alive if they had come from a, of a, a you know come from a piece of human tissue, which had been kept in water. Uh, they would have ceased to exist in a matter of minutes, the doctor said. So, I don't know, man. Like I'm gonna put it this way. I mean. <laughs> Again, unless you have a highly skilled Jeffrey Dahmer or a fucking Jack the Ripper doing this shit. And who is literally going to go out and... I mean, listen, I mean, I know people do crazy sick shit, but I just don't believe somebody went out, took someone, you know, tied him to a table, cut this fucking shit out just to get some fucking church cred. I mean, what the fuck? I don't know. Yeah. Doesn't seem likely. Yeah. That testimony is pretty powerful, you know, especially indicating that the owner of the tissue was beaten severely, you know, had extreme trauma that it showed in the tissue. Like it just goes along with the crucifixion, you know, it's, or you could even say, you know, that God like suffers when we do evil or whatever, you know, it's like painful to him. You uh, know, I can, that's I, wild. I can, I can understand that in a sense. I mean, 
I believe we all have a little bit of God in us. That's just my opinion. And I could see how when I do dumb stuff and live in a shitty, fucked up way, that does, in a sense, put strain and hurt on my spirituality. Absolutely. And the God within, you know, part of God within inside me. So, I mean, without getting too corny and too whatever, I can see what you're getting at. Just in, you know, I could look at it in a different way. Mm-hmm. You know, for sure. Absolutely. But yeah, I thought that this one, even though like, you know, I read through this one pretty quick, I thought that that was a uh, rather powerful example of some high strangeness. Very <laughs> powerful. You know, yes. You know, I, miracle, I mean, high strangeness to me, same thing possible. So. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that one is a really powerful one. And that Pope Francis was involved in, Yes, you know, overseeing it kind of thing. I, I loved how I was reading it. I was like, why did the name change? You know, and then I had uh-huh. asked you and you told me, uh-huh. told me the same thing. I was like, wow, that just, that just sounds like magic. <laughs> well, yeah. And I mean, you know, there's evidence in the Bible of Jesus changing a few people's names. One of them being St. Peter. Peter's name was Simon before. And then Jesus changed his name. So, you know, there's obviously significance to doing that, you know, whether it be magic or otherwise. Right? Yeah, that's why Jay-Z and Kanye West changed their name. Probably. <laughs> well, kind of indicative of, indica- indicative of putting on some sort of other persona, right? I mean, anyway. All right. So a couple more we have. So this one is in, occurred in Venezuela, December 8th, 1991. So a relatively modern one as well. Uh, it occurred during uh, the Midnight Mass, December 8th, 91, at a shrine in Venezuela. Uh, Father Oti, chaplain of the shrine, described the event. So this is his description of what happened. After having consumed one of the pieces of the large host, which I had divided into four parts, that's normal, by the way, for sometimes the priest has like a really big host. Yeah, oh, yes, I have it, seen it, yes. And then he shares it with like, if there's other priests like celebrating with him, he'll share it. Um, so he consumed his part, one of the four. He returned the other pieces to the paten, which is the little gold, usually it's a gold or metal plate that they keep the blessed host on. A little later, I looked down towards the paten and I could not believe what I saw. One of the pieces of the host that I divided was showing a red spot and from it, a red substance began to emanate, similar to the manner in which blood escapes from a wound. After mass, I took the host and preserved it safely in the sacristy of the shrine. The next day at six in the morning, I went to see the host and verified that the blood still continued to flow a little later, but some had begun to dry. However, still today, the blood appears as fresh. The strange thing is that the blood flowed only from one side, nevertheless, without staining the remainder of the Eucharistic piece. During the Mass, there were numerous pilgrims who immediately verified that the priest did not have any wounds from which blood was present, uh, and could not have spilled onto the host. Uh, besides, from the analyses, the results concluded that the blood of the priest did not match the one on the host. The host of the miracle was subjected to special study requested by the bishop uh, of the to- at the time, and the results confirmed that the blood was human type AB positive, again, same blood type as the other ones, which matches the Shroud of Turin, Lanciano, uh, and... Uh, Buenos Aires. Since then, the host has been an object of veneration and devotion 
for thousands of pilgrims, not only from Venezuela, but the whole world. Um, you can still see this miracle, uh, evidence of the miracle today at a convent in Los Teques uh, in Venezuela. A young person from New Jersey named Daniel Sanford had gone on a pilgrimage uh, to see the bleeding host. He was filming uh, footage of the church, and he says... On November 12th, 1998, I went on pilgrimage uh, with a prayer group and they took us to see the miraculous host of Britannia in the chapel of the Augustinian Sisters of Los Teques. Our spiritual director, Father Mozzarella, <laughs> mozzarella almost like mozzarella cheese, just made me laugh, <laughs> celebrated the mass. After the celebration ended, he opened the door of the tabernacle, which contained the host of the miracle. With great astonishment, I saw that the host was as if in flames and there was a pulsating heart that was bleeding in the center. I saw this for about 30 seconds and then the host returned to normal. I was able to film part of the miracle with my video camera. That's wild. Even like the flaming heart idea is wild. Mm, yes. So actually you'd asked me in the beginning why I wanted to do this and why it's like kind of, time sensitive like i wanted to put this out in june because june is not just for pride month <laughs> june is the month in the catholic church where they celebrate the sacred heart of jesus so yeah, isn't that, that what you that, that email that you showed me yes <laughs> yeah i was gonna remind my children's school principal that uh you know if we're, if we're at a Catholic school, why are we not celebrating the sacred heart of Jesus? Why are we only celebrating rainbows and homosexuality? <laughs> Just a question. Yeah, yeah. Be, besides besides the, the rainbow balloon <laughs> banners and all this silly shit you want to do at your Catholic church, are we, we going <laughs> to talk about this since it happened to you? You know, I, I will bet you, I would bet you my life savings that almost no school, no Catholic school, publicly funded one, will talk about the Sacred Heart of Jesus this month at all. Yo, at that point, knock down your fucking sign and just put a public school. It should, yes, absolutely. I agree. To me, school is babysitting, so whatever. <laughs> no, because... You're like, I'm, am I... And not to sound screwed up, and again, like I'm not even saying people would make this decision because they're homophobic, but it's just like I no. can see... Possibly putting your kid in a school like that just so there's less of that being influenced on them. You know, at, you would assume that there's like a certain like uh, common denominator of what's going to be taught, what's going to be emphasized or de-emphasized, but that line is completely blurred these days. There is literally very little difference. Uh, and I think that's on purpose. In, in 20 you know? months, Jesus is just going to be a they then. It's fucking unreal. Well, some people would say that Jesus was a tranny, so yeah. or asexual yeah, or whatever, yeah. you know, or he had to, he had a wife and he had children. Anyways, we could go on. No, with they that, just so. edited out the times he was banging out Mary. <laughs> <laughs> some would argue, but you know, that was his last <laughs> temptation. He's like, "Fuck, I'm gonna have to give up that good piece of ass." Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Anyways. <sighs> But, uh, yeah, I think, though, that's a, maybe a reason why Pride is in June. To take away 
emphasis and interest. Mm. Maybe Is, that's maybe that's why they call them flamers. Well, <laughs> I can't believe you just said that. <laughs> oh, I'm going to have to go eat a Eucharist after this episode. <laughs> oh my God. That's too funny. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> ah, that was good. Sorry. Mm, it's okay. Go ahead. Oh, so oh, you, you are you done now? I'm done with that I, one, yeah. I, I, I did so much fun, I already forgot where we were. <laughs> right, so now I'm going to go to one that uh, happened in Poland in uh, 2008. Mm. Uh, yeah, Sunday, October 12, 2008. Um, it, it does mention this. and it, You know what? He even mentioned that other thing in the last article. You know, and, it, and if this was to be like a real in-depth show, I probably would have looked into it. But I, I do find it interesting that these last two articles also let you know that it was like a certain amount of time in between things. This one mm-hmm. does also say two weeks after the beautification of servant of, of God, Friar or whatever, F.R. Michael's Sopoko. So, I mean, like for some reason, it is also specifying this was two weeks after something else they already did. Okay. The last one did happen to mention it was also a week prior or a week after a specific thing too. So, you know, who knows if that has anything do with the whole situation just throwing mm-hmm. that out there during the holy mass celebrated at the parish church of saint anthony in sokolka at 8 30 a.m a consecrated host fell from the hands of one of the priests during the distri- the distribution of communion next to the altar the priest interrupted the distribution of communion and picked up the host and in accordance with lit- litur- liturgical liturgical norms placed it in a small container of water in this case uh one found in some churches besides the tabernacle where the priest may wash his fingers after distributing communion so picked it up tossed it in there the host was expected to dissolve to dissolve in the water which would later be disposed of properly sister uh julia dabowska of uh, the Congregation of the Eucharistic Sisters was the uh, parish sacristan. Mm-hmm. I don't even know what that means. At the end of the Mass, at the request of the pastor, uh, stainless, ugh, these names, she poured the water and the host into another container. Knowing that the consecrated host would take, uh, ta- take some time to dissolve, she placed a new container in the safe located in the parish, and then uh, she and the pastor had the keys to the safe. So they put this stuff away. A week later on October 19th, Mission Sunday, when the pastor asked her about the condition of the host, Sister Julia went to the safe. When she opened the door, she noticed a delicate aroma of unleavened bread. When she opened the container, she saw in the middle of the host, which was still largely intact, a curved, bright red stain, like a blood stain, a living particle of a body. The water was untainted by the color. The sister immediately informed the priest, who brought in other priests at the parish, you know, to check it out. They were all amazed and left speechless by what they saw. 
they kept a discreet and prudent silence about the event, considering its importance. This was a consecrated host, which, by the power of the words of Christ at the Last Supper, was truly his body. From a human point of view, it was difficult at that point to define if the altar form of the remainder of the host was the result of an organic growth, a chemical reaction, or some other cause. They immediately notified the Metropolitan Archbishop uh, of Bialystok, Edward Orzorowski, who went to Sokolka with the Chancellor of uh, Curia and other diocese uh, people. They were all deeply moved by what they saw. The Archbishop ordered, ordered that the host be uh, protected while they wait to see what happened. On October, tw- on October, 20, uh, October 29th, the container with the host was transferred to the, divine, to the Divine Mercy Chapel in the rectory and placed in the tabernacle. The next day, by the decision of the Archbishop, the stained host was taken out of the water and placed on a small corporal, which was then put back in the tabernacle. The host was kept this way for three years until it was solemnly brought to the church on October 2nd, 2001. During the first year, it was kept secret. During that time, church authorities reflected on what to do since they were dealing with a sign from God which needed to be interpreted. By mid-January of 2009, the altered fragment of the host had dried out naturally and remained like a blood stain or or clot. Since then, its appearance has not changed. That same month, the archbishop requested uh, studies be done on the host. On March 30th, he created an ecclesial commission to study the phenomenon. A piece of the altered host was taken and analyzed independently by two experts, whose names I'm not even going to try to pronounce, (laughs) in order to ensure the credibility of the results. Both are histopathologists at the Medical University Bialystok. The studies were carried out at the university's Department of Pathomorphology. The specialist worked. Uh, specialist work was governed by the scientific norms and obligations for analyzing any scientific problem. So there was no, you know, same as just anything else. The mm-hmm. studies were exhaustively described and photographed. The complete uh, documentation was given to the Metropolitan Curia of Bialystok, or however you say the name of this place. When the samples were taken for analysis, the undissolved part of the consecrated host had become embedded in the cloth. However, the red blood clot was as clear as ever. This transformed part of the host was dry and fragile, and it was in, like interwoven with the rest of the fragment, which had kept the form of bread. The sample that was taken was large enough to carry out all the necessary studies. Both of the independent studies were in perfect agreement. They concluded that the structure of the transformed fragment of the host is identical, again, to the myocardial tissue of a living person who is nearing death. Mm. The structure of the heart muscle fibers is deeply intertwined with that of the brain in a way impossible to achieve 
with human means. The study proved, the studies proved that no foreign substance was added to the consecrated host. Rather, part of the host took the form of heart muscle of a person near death. This kind of phenomenon is inexplicable by the natural sciences. At the same time, the church teaches us that consecrated hosts become the body of Christ by the power of his own words at the Last Supper, repeated by the priest during the consecration of the Mass. The results of the histopathological studies dated January 21st, 2009, were included in the dossier given to the Metropolitan Curia, blah, blah, blah. So the, this event is not opposed to the faith of the church. Rather, it confirms it. And this is what the Metropolitan Curia of Bialystok stated. The church professes that after the words of consecrations by the power of the Holy Spirit, the bread is transformed into the body of Christ and the wine into his blood. Additionally, this is an invitation for all ministers of the Eucharist to distribute the body of the Lord with faith and care and for the faithful to receive him with adoration. So, I mean, even these people who are basically what I'm getting out of that is even these people who study this or even saying they see the benefits of doing this because obviously it fucking happened. Yeah. Pretty wild. Yeah, that's a really powerful one, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. There was another one that I, I think... Uh, I must have looked at it and not covered. Mm. I don't remember exactly which one it was, and I think uh, th that was kind of like what, one of the weird things I was going to mention, too. There was one that I'm almost positive the tissue eventually even started growing to, like, another attached thing that would have been next to it in the heart. Oh, wow. So, like, more tissue grew yes, later. Yes, like, it was just like, like you heart tissue more. Like, it, it was literally... Like, fucking weird. That's crazy. Oh, yeah, wow. I was just like, yo, that's, that's a little bugged out. See, and then that's the stuff where it's just like, I, I I don't know. I just, I don't think these, at least these examples, I don't think we're finding, like, extremes where, obviously, you didn't go just dig up a grave because they're saying the shit is, you know, from a live person. Mm -hmm. And I don't think you're, you know, cutting some dude out uh, up in the back of the fucking church with this shit either. Very weird. It's just. Yeah. Very weird, very wild, very wonderful. <laughs> yeah. yes. uh, so I have one more. Go for um, it. Yeah. Okay, so this one occurred in India. The city is, I'm going to butcher it, Jirata Konam, India. Just my best guess. So this Eucharistic miracle was verified on May 5th, 2001 in Trivandrum, India. In the host, there appeared to be the likeness of a man similar to Christ crowned with thorns. So his face appeared in the host. This is how it went down. Reverend Father Johnson Carnor, pastor of the church where the miracle took place, recounts this. So this is his story. On April 28, 2001, in the parish church of St. Mary of Chiratakonam, we began the novena to St. Jude, uh, as we do every year. 
At 8.49 a.m., I exposed the Most Holy Sacrament in the monstrance, monstrance for public adoration. So if people don't know what that is, it's like the holder. Like sometimes you'll see pictures of the white circle in this like gold holder. And it usually looks like the sun or like emanating like rays out of it. That's a monstrance. So it's just to like show it to people on the altar. And adoration is when you just like go into the church. A blessed host is there. And then you're just like have quiet prayer time in front of it. And it's like time that you can spend with Jesus. If you believe that it's really his body, he's there with you. So back to the story. After a few moments, I saw what appeared to be three dots in the Holy Eucharist. I then stopped praying and began to look at the monstrance, also inviting the people there to admire the three dots. I then asked the faithful people to remain in prayer and repose the monstrance in the tabernacle. On April 30th, I celebrated Holy Mass, on the and on the following day, I left for Trivandrum. On Saturday morning, the 5th of May, 2001, I opened the church for the usual celebrations of Mass. I vested for Mass and went to open the tabernacle to see what had happened to the Eucharist and the monstrance. I immediately noted in the host a figure to the likeness of a human face. I was deeply moved and asked the faithful to kneel and begin praying. I thought I alone could see the face, so I asked the altar server what he noticed, and he answered, I see the figure of a man. I noticed that the rest of the people were looking intently at the monstrance. We began adoration, and as the minutes went by, the image became more and more clear. I did not have the courage to say anything, and I just began to cry. During adoration, we have the practice of reading a passage from the Holy Scriptures. The reading of that day was the one from chapter 20 of the Gospel of John, which narrates the story in which Jesus appeared to St. Thomas and asked him to look at his wounds, because Thomas was doubtful that it was really him who had resurrected. I was only able to say a few words in my homily, and having to leave for the near another nearby parish, I immediately summoned a photographer to take pictures of the Holy Eucharist with the human face on it. After two hours, all the photos were developed, with the passing of time making the face in every photo more and more clear. That's pretty wild. Yeah, that's about that. <laughs> right? Uh, so crazy. Yeah. So that's why when I hear stories like this, I'm just like, it gives me chills. Like, there's evidence of, you know, that's really Jesus there. You know? And there is also other types of miracles. I won't get into the details of them because we're already like, you know, an hour 15-ish in to recording this. So not to make it too long, but there are people who have also lived off of the Eucharist alone, no other food. And I was researching that a little bit. A couple of those instances, I'm not totally convinced are true. So, you know, we're not just like buying this at face value here, but um, there's a few saints who like towards the end of their life or for many years, were living off of just like one Eucharistic host a day, no other food. One woman actually lived off of the Eucharist for 60 years. Yeah. yeah I don't know about that. I know. <laughs> Yeah, her story is pretty wild. Um, but yeah, there's, for example, St. Angela, 
St. Catherine of Siena, she's a very well-known saint. I mean, is there enough of what your body needs? Well, again, I mean, whatever, I guess it depends on how you want to look at what's going on. But I mean, is there even enough of what your body needs to sustain life in in a host? No, but there would be if it's, you know, Jesus is sometimes referred to as the living bread. No, no, I understand. Yeah, I mean, nutritionally, no. And just like that little piece of unconsecrated bread. No, of course not. It's literally like a wafer. It dissolves in your mouth in like one minute. And now was she drinking? Was she do, doing wine too? Um. So I'll just read the Saint Catherine of Siena. It was, one it's just funny like, to think like that. Somebody for sixty years literally just lived. Oh, that a, lady. A, a cup uh, of wine and a wafer every day. It's like, it was so just like you just story, wanted to drink. Her story was really interesting. <laughs> no, I know. I totally get that. Uh, her name is Floripes de Jesus, also known as Lola. She was a Brazilian woman. Uh, so her story is interesting because at age 16, she had an accident where she like fell out of a tree and it made her a paraplegic. And then she also lost appetite after that accident. So it said it changed, the accident changed her body and she no longer felt hungry, thirsty, or sleepy ever. So, like, something happened to her, obviously. So, she had, like, a physiological change. Apparently, no remedy was effective. And then, I guess, because she was never hungry, she just lived off of the of the Eucharist. But even still, if you were doing that, even as an experiment, if, if I tried doing that, I would probably lose weight and deteriorate and die you know, like obviously something is happening here to sustain her physical being. See, like that, I would almost one of those stories. Mm-hmm. I would actually, and you know, I'm not saying this about like uh, all stories, but I would mm-hmm. say that that one could possibly be a, a cult story being put out there. I mean, I even I mean, listen, if the lady was really a paraplegic. That's fucking horrible. Yeah. But I'm just going to put this out there. Fucking retarded Drake being in a wheelchair. To me, knowing how he is now, Mm. that wheelchair was his fucking chariot. Spinning those pupils open and closed with his fucking wheelchair. Well, now Drake is a bajillionaire. And no, I know, but I'm just saying, you know, again, you're talking about a paraplegic, another person. Yeah. Fitting, you know, I, just, I think I think Drake's reward and this lady's reward are very different. You no, know I know, but I'm just saying. Like, they could be. <laughs> yeah, she did eventually. She used to have people visit her a lot and, like, you know, want to pray with her and just, like, kind of take in her presence, I guess, or talk with her. Eventually, though, uh, the archbishop of where she lived asked her to stop receiving visitors. And she complied. She said, that's fine. And she lived a life of silence and privacy afterwards. Um, She always said that she was praying for priests and spreading devotion to the sacred heart of Jesus. She was known for saying, whoever wants to look for me finds me in the heart of Jesus. Lola passed away in April 1999. So it's pretty recent. And her funeral was attended by 22 priests and 12,000 people. Mm. 
She was declared a servant of God by the Holy See in 2005. So that's interesting. But yeah, some notable um, saints who lived off of the Eucharist, supposedly, are St. Catherine of Siena. She lived off of the Eucharist for 25 years until her death. Uh, history has it told that she began to do this when she was only eight years old. And she did this until she died at the age of 33, of course, 33. Uh, There's even also some other notable saints, St. Joseph of Cupertino. He survived off of the bread and blood, the wine and the bread for 15 years. And he died in 1663. Um... Another person, Alexandrina da Costa, lived three years solely on the Eucharist and died in 1955. So a more recent one. But yeah, interesting stuff. Yeah, sure. Mm. So yeah, I just wanted to kind of put that, put that out there. We also had, you know, this begs the question, are there Eucharistic miracles outside of the Catholic Church? Oh, right? Absolutely. Personally... I could not find any, mm. <laughs> you know, I only found a couple in the Orthodox faith. Um, and apparently usually the ones that occur in the Orthodox church are to non-believers. Interestingly enough. So, you know, I tried to find, I could not, but it doesn't mean that it hasn't happened. Just, I was not able to find any documented miracles outside of the Catholic church. I get that. So. I mean, yeah. I, I, it's not n- anywhere close to the same type of miracles we're talking about. And I know we're already kind of late into the time, so I don't know how far you wanted me to even, or if we're even going to touch on it. But uh, I used Eucharists, actually, mm-hmm. a lot. Yeah, that's interesting. So, yeah, I do want you to talk about that, actually, because that's co- partly why I wanted to do the episode with you, because I know in the Gnostic Mass... Did you have a form of Eucharist? Eucharist. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's like so if you want to just like touch yeah. on that a little bit. Yeah, but, but what I was going to say originally, if you mm. were to look back who I was uh, even before I started magic or look back to who I was 10 years ago, maybe my Eucharistic practices did create a miracle in who I am now. And I Possibly. did not step into a Catholic church to do no no but you know that was even another thing not to and 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 this is where i want to go i guess with my thing again Mm -hmm. some people could be like you know i can't believe he's even entertaining this all that actually no i don't think actually a lot of my listeners would think that but some people may um Mm -hmm. you know for all i know is that there is a recipe there's a recipe to make a roll and then there's 50 other fucking ethnic versions of it Mm. But you still get a roll. Maybe there is just a basic recipe that makes this stuff happen. For all you know, the architecture that's around you is part of that recipe. I mean, I I just do think that uh, what you were just saying, I don't think you have to actually be in a Catholic church for it to happen. You know, I, I just think that maybe there is just like a certain plan or recipe that doesn't matter 
or what fucking religious background you are, as long as all those things are in check, this will happen. You know? Mm -hmm. I bake my bread a certain if I do the recipes as it's supposed to be, I'm going to get a loaf of bread. If I fuck up the recipes, it's not going to be a loaf of bread anymore. You know what I'm saying? So just all that. But um, yes, uh, in the OTO, and unfortunately, even just getting into the OTO, uh, the whole Eucharistic thing with that, I'm really not that uh, much of a fan of saying like that's going to create change. Uh, maybe the more I investigate what the actual stuff in the cake of light could be representing or doing, then maybe, maybe somehow something is actually up with that, which is a possibility. But um, the OTO, uh, every time there's a Gnostic Mass done, at the end of the Gnostic Mass, you will uh, receive a cake of light and you will receive uh, like a shot of wine. If you don't drink, they will give you grape juice because they're not going to force you to drink alcohol if you're not, a, you know, whatever. You could be an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, you do that and uh, you fold your arms across each other and you say, there is no part of me that is not of the gods. So I guess like even in a sense of that, I mean, I guess this is just how I look at it. If there is multiple of gods, it was still created from a God above that. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So if those gods are inside of me, technically, maybe the God that made that is also inside of me, in a sense. That's where I'm going with that. Um, and he does also have, uh, Crowley had the mass of the Phoenix, which he did suggest doing every day. And it did include a Eucharist, one you're burning and one you're, you know, you're using. But uh, it's, yeah, the OTO... And Crowley, I know Crowley's probably not the best way to show how the you know how important Eucharist could be, but uh, it is very actually very very huge in magic. Um, outside of the OTO and the Gnostic Mass, I used it quite oftenly. I actually. Believe it or not, as silly as it sounds, uh, there was a witch store that I used to go to, and conveniently, not too too far down, a few stores away, there was a church store. So I would actually go <laughs> to the church store, and I actually bought those tubs of Eucharists. And I used those in my, uh, my magical stuff. And a lot of times uh, when I would go to do it, when you're doing rituals... There's like so many kind of like different ways of opening it. But uh, for me and, you know, what's normally suggested and how I would do it is that I would kind of like before I started drawing anything, doing anything. Soon as I stepped foot in that circle, I called upon God. I acknowledged that he is the thing above all. And I would ask him to bless my Eucharist, I, I fucking moron, I'm holding it up. Asking God, put yourself into this. Same thing with my fucking wine and my little cup. I'm asking God, bless this. I mean, for me, the reason why I was doing magic is because I wanted to get closer to God. Mm -hmm. So why would I not want that in me? 
So I would do that, and then I would take in the Eucharist. I would, you know, drink the wine. And the reasoning of me doing that is because I, for me, just in my mind, I just took in God, and I just took in the armor of God. And now what I want to achieve, which most of the time was getting closer to God, going through whatever I'm doing in this space that I'm allowing to put myself into, I want that shield around me of protection. Mm -hmm. And a lot of, a lot of magicians, you know, because not every magician out there is, oh, Baphomet, oh, Satan, oh, (laughs) the devil, Lucifer, Baal. You know, unfortunately, these armchair magicians that have been around for you know six or eight years that know zilch about fucking magic have become the staple, the staple of what we all think magic is. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe it's not all what everybody thinks it is. Maybe it's not all just bad and maybe not all black and white. Maybe there's a gray area in there somewhere. What I'm getting at is that there's a lot of stuff about magic a lot of forms of magic that people have no idea about because you have the same three ignorant people that have been podcasting for a long time telling you ignorant, incorrect shit. Mm. Not trying to get cocky and pat myself on the back, but that is literally the truth of the fact. And considering I've never shit on them and they won't fucking even bother with me, tells me even more, they actually don't know shit and they're intimidated to even have me on their show. Because I'm going to speak another fucking language. Where they're sitting there jerking off on stupid shit about Twin Peaks. I'm going to be breaking it down like nobody else fucking said. <laughs> now, within mm. saying that, people might have a few ideas what I was getting at now. But. I uh, think so. <laughs> Some people will. For sure. But, uh, it, you know, but it, it was very... Even a lot of times when I would like... I would work with angels or God. I always showed my devotion. And I mean, this is even another thing too in magic. I am not calling something into my area that I do not look up to and that I do not aspire to be. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, that, that's how I was. So a lot of times when I worked with these things, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at these things as divine, divine beings close to God. I want that. I want to know what that feels like. Yeah. You know, so I, I take that in. I mean, to me, that's like a form. I mean, it sounds crazy. I give me a form of worship, more of adoration. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, and so like these Eucharists, I do believe there is uh, actually some, you know, some serious power, even, even if it's just purely mental, like linking things. Yeah. Even at the the most basic, the most basic, you know, thing, at least you're getting out of that is the whole mental link. Yes. Which which can create a lot of change within oneself. That mental link may not turn that wafer into to skin. But it's going to after a while, if your heart is really in to what Mm -hmm. you're doing, that's going to transmute who you are inside. Yeah, and I think, you know, I really 
appreciate and I identify also with what you're saying um, because like I've done that in like my yoga practice in the past as well. Like there's no bread involved. There's no eating of anything involved. But like when I would practice yoga, also my motivation was to enrich my relationship with God. You know, that is how I would connect and meditate and whatever. Um, And I would like envision a lot of times like asking God like to protect me in like white light or things like this. It's a mental transformation um, which I'll also say a lot of people who do say go to church and receive the host are having no mental connection whatsoever. They're just going through the motions. They're just in there checking their watch. Yeah. That, oh yeah, I went to church. I'm a good person this week and see you next week. Yeah. Or, or they're, too, they're no... too busy hating, too busy hating their fellow Catholic a few pews away whose kids crying. <laughs> Yes, totally. Or, you know, I know plenty of people who do go to church regularly and are horrible people to deal with and talk with and be around, you know? So, um, it doesn't make you better than somebody else that you're receiving the host or not receiving the host or whatever your spiritual practices. I'm not saying one is better than the other. I just think it's really fascinating that there are that there is scientific proof behind these particular instances, you know. So there is definitely something going on with that particular ritual, calling upon that particular God, you know. If we want to talk about Jesus as God, mm. obviously there's something special about that. But can you achieve mental and physiological transformation in other ways? Absolutely. I've done it. You've done it. Yeah. Anyone can do it anytime, any moment of the day. Yeah. You know? I, I even, you know, you had asked me yesterday about, uh, have you ever felt anything? Mm. Yeah. I was like, so like when you yeah. had the, the Gnostic mass, like, did you ever feel anything or doing the Eucharistic practices on your own? Yeah. And I remember I had said mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, believe it or not, I mean, I'm, I'm much different now, but like, you know, I, a lot of times in the Gnostic mass, uh, this was even reasons why I got involved in it. Um, I would have like sometimes like a lot of, I guess, social anxiety. There's a lot of movements and things that people do who are even on the sidelines of the Gnostic mass to where it's like, you're going to sit, you're going to make a ISIS pose. You're going to do certain things. Mm-hmm. My mind was like, am I going to bump into the fucking person behind me? Am mm-hmm. I going to bump into the person you know, in front of me? All these things, I'm, I'm going to have to see so-and-so's tits who I don't care to see. I have all these things going through my mind that, like, I, I was like, I don't think I ever was, like, 100% just in, in it. And then yeah. if, I, if I'm in the mess, I'm already worried about, well, what do I got to do? And am I going to fuck that up? Am I going to hand the fucking burner to the priestess the correct way she fucking likes it handed to her? Mm-hmm. You know, so you have all these things, and I, I can never really 100% be in the moment. But... Yeah. From my own experiences at home, I could tell you more often than not, believe it or not, I did my little thing and did my Eucharist without asking for anything, without actually doing like a a real ritual. Mm -hmm. I literally would sometimes do these things just to give thanks. And I would literally have this this host 
you know, I, I'm going to sound corny or whatever, but I don't care. I, I try to be transparent. You know, I, I, I would, I would hold this fucking thing up and ask, you know, and, and, and take, and take this stuff in. And I would like literally ask for God to shine his light upon me, mm-hmm. to fill my body and soul with him. You know, it's just this. I think when you truly mean it, there is a, uh, there is a serious, I think you can have a serious mental, you know, change with inside. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, and, and I, like I said, I, I did that a lot more than like, uh, you know, let me invoke Toth and ask him to help me with this or that or whatever. You know, I, I did do a lot of stuff just, again, my whole point of getting into the Kabbalah was to reach Kether and have a conversation with God. Mm-hmm. So that's, I mean, if that's what I want to do, why would I not keep on giving adorations to him and asking to get closer to him and be more of him, you know, yes. as much as I could in the flesh. Mm-hmm. So uh, with that all done, I'm just going to read off this one thing I have. Um, Eucharistic magic is a staple of the re- magician's regular practice. In the cultu from Liber Aleph, which I probably just totally screwed up that word, Crowley instructs, neglect not the daily miracle of the Mass, either by the rite of the Gnostic Catholic Church, which now he's talking about taking in the Eucharistic and the Gnostic uh, Mass, or that of the Phoenix, the Mass of the Phoenix. Even in the, Sith, the sixth article of the Creed of the Thelemites, which is something we recite before the Mass starts, Part of that is even, and for as much as meat and drink are transmuted in us daily into spiritual substance, I believe in the miracle of the Mass. And the whole point of the Mass at the end is to do the Eucharist. Mm -hmm. And this is from him. A Eucharist of some sort should not assurably be... A Eucharist of some sort of some sort, should most assuredly be consumed daily by every magician. He should regard it as the main sustenance of his magical life. It is more important than any other magical ceremony because it completes a circle. The whole of the force expended is completely reabsorbed. Yet the virtue is that vast gain represented by the abyss between man and God. So even in my opinion, that's representing the disconnect. Mm -hmm. The magician becomes filled with God, fed upon God, intoxicated with God. Little by little, his body will become purified by the internal lustration of God. Day by day, his mortal frame, shedding its earthly elements, will become in very truth the temple of the Holy Ghost. Day by day, matter is replaced by spirit, the human by the divine, Ultimately, the change will be complete. God manifest in the flesh. Now, I know people, you know, this is coming from Crowley, though. 
again, I will say that guy, he had his issues, tons of them, and I do not put him up on a pedestal. But there are times that man, I believe, drops serious fucking jewels. Regardless of what the fuck his Eucharist was, I still used something else. And I took that advice. And I got effects that have made me a better person, I think, than I used to be. Mm -hmm. So even when you have somebody like that even still telling you how fucking important this shit is, there might be something behind it. Yeah. Well, I think that's evident. You know, we're all we're all searching for a connection with God. You know, all of us are seeking an experience of God. So, you know, he had it in his way. The Catholic Church has it in their way. Um, you know, it's funny because he was saying in what you just read that like the whole mass is to prepare for that pinnacle moment. Yes. Right. To connect with God. Same in a yoga practice, all the poses, all the physical bending and stretching and breathing that you're doing is to prepare you for meditation. It's to stretch your body out, relax you so you can sit comfortably for a long ass time in silence and quiet and connect with God. And that's the whole point of it. See, and that's it's not, see, and it's that's, not to get skinny or to look better or, yeah, yeah. you know, be more flexible or stronger. It's to sit in meditation. That's what the asana is for. See, and then that's where it's like, there's other, so I'm not supposed, I'm not just using OTO, mm-hmm. but there is, you know, a lot of magic that takes those influences and adds it into this. And I do think that's part of it is the fact that, like, why you're doing this Eucharist thing. Yeah. You can't be thinking about like, fuck that iPhone's coming out next week. Am I, am I going to miss a, am I gonna yeah. miss a call from so-and-so or like, oh fuck, some reality TV show's coming on soon. I better hurry this up. You yeah. have cleared your mind of all those earthly things. Mm-hmm. And you're literally just focused mm-hmm. on you and God's relationship and you being more of God. And that's what the mass is supposed to be in other forms of Christianity also, Catholicism, whatever. That's what it should be. Personally, I've had experiences like I ne- had never gone to adoration before in my life till maybe like a couple years ago. And that was my first time going to adoration where the church is very quiet and it's just the blessed host on the altar. And there's maybe like usually one other person in the church, two other people. And personally, I find more connection in those moments than in a regular Sunday Mass because the Sunday Mass is full of distractions. Now, if you're really practicing breathing, attention, focus, you should still be focused on what's happening. But some weeks we do it better than others, Uh, you know. But, um, you know, having said that, being in the presence of what I do believe is God, you know, as much as he can be physically present in the Eucharist, I find it very powerful. Yeah. You know, and one thing I, I totally left out after that whole spiel I went on about how I did my stuff. Yeah. There was times in those moments when I literally wasn't casting. Sometimes I would cast a circle to remove all negative energies. To think that's making a clearer channel between me and God. 
mm-hmm. or sometimes I would just literally just set up my stuff. And to be totally honest, there was even a time my wife had walked past my shit as I was starting to do my thing because she was leaving. And when she even came back home, she's like, yo, not for nothing, but it looks like you're doing fucking Catholic church in the living room. Because she went to Catholic school, so she knows what it looks like. Yeah. So, like, but, like, besides that, that's another, getting off the topic again, let me get back to what I wanted to say. It's okay. And I'm even going to, I'm even going to admit it, I'm thinking of these experiences I had, and I'm even a little emotional thinking about it now. Mm -hmm. There has been times that I have done that stuff. Well, I'm going to totally fucking admit it. I don't care who the fuck thinks what the fuck about me. I have legit cried after things that I've done. Because... Of this intense fucking feeling that mm-hmm. I have never felt before. That truly made me think, holy shit, God actually listened to me. <laughs> and I actually felt him. You literally feel like you're walking on fucking air. There's something to do with that shit for real. It's very overwhelming when that oh. happens, yes. Yeah, I mean, just to admit that, you know, that I fucking cried over, over certain things. It's because... Of like, holy shit, I was that lucky that I might have actually connected to God. Mm-hmm. That, that's like a fucking blessing in this world right now. Absolutely. You know, and that, yeah. that, that, shit, that shit changes me. It changed me, at least. You know? I love that. I think that's a great place to end it off. Yeah. Right. You know? So. Um yeah, I appreciate people who listen to the whole thing. You know, if you did, right. amazing. I hope you learned something. You got something out of it. I'm not trying to convert you, I promise. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you can do whatever you want. Yeah, that wasn't my thing. Your life. <laughs> that wasn't but, my uh, thing, too, to, to convert people into uh, you know, yeah. Catholicism or even convert people into practicing, you know, my stuff. Totally. I mean, if, if this piqued your curiosity, then I think my intention was successful so that's all i hope that curiosity gets peaked people listen to it maybe they approach their own religious or spiritual practices in a different way after having heard this you know mm-hmm. i hope if you have any questions comments concerns you can reach me on the gram or email or whatever you know um but yeah thank you for doing this with me oh, no, i appreciate no. I, your perspective I loved, I loved it i was really actually this is honestly one of the best episodes I think I've done in a while. No, 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 for good. real. This this was something that was like right up my alley because I was actually, even though it was a supposed to thelemite, I was very big into the Eucharist and God. <laughs> yeah. Here you go, there you go. Yeah. But yeah, June for Jesus, people. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah let's little, talk about the miracle of, of cutting it, cut, yeah. cutting into the pride you know, propaganda, but I love uh, it. I love it. And, and that's uh, why I'm going to make this episode ASAP. So you can drop it. ASAP. Thank you. I appreciate that. My producer people. It, yes. Give it up for the NY Patriot. Thank you. Thank you. And thank, <laughs> thank you again so for real. You know, I got, I even got a little teary eyed how to wipe my eye before I, I, that, that shit's, that shit's fucking serious, man. And it's, it's touching. Yes. And, it, and, and they are experiences. That will stay with me for the rest of my life. That That's mm-hmm. how serious they are. Is that you may be able to kind of forget a little bit of the scenery. But I'm never going to forget that feeling. Good. And that's knowledge. So. Uh, 
Yeah, that is, I guess, the end of this show real quick. In case people don't know who the fuck I am, I'm the NY Patriot. You can find my shit, <laughs> the NY Patriot Show and the Occult Rejects on YouTube, BitChute, Rumble, and all major podcasts. Amazing. I <laughs> love your spiel. You have it down pat. So good. Thank right. you so much. I really appreciate you and one year of our show. Oh, yeah. Oh, and yeah. the listeners who make it happen, please share this. You know, if you think someone needs to hear it or would be interested by it, I really appreciate it. And uh, we'll see you in the next one. Stay gangster. <laughs> Later.